Stella. Sunny Stella. Running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head. And nobody answered me. Welcome to a new episode of Fringeworthy, the podcast. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for all your interest and letters that you've been sending us about Fringeworthy. And we have some new news for you today, and to give it to us, we're going to go to John. John, tell us about what's going on. Hi, folks. As you heard in the last podcast, we are producing a Savage Worlds version of Fringeworthy. Uh, we're busy working on it right now. We're doing a lot of conversions. We're probably going to have to do some playtesting, even though most of the book is going to be fairly straightforward uh, to move over. There are some conversion issues to uh, Savage Worlds we have to address, so that's something I'm going to uh, work on and hopefully come up with a nice balanced version for Savage Worlds. So uh, if, if we need any playtesters, we may actually announce it here and let you folks know if you, if you can playtest or not. John, I was told that uh, one of the developers actually has done a lot of Savage World uh, development. That's true. Uh, John Jameson, he's actually a professional. Well, I'm a professional writer too, but he's more professional than I am. <laughs> uh, he's a professional writer. He's also done some game design work uh, for Pinnacle and other, and other companies. So he's going to be working on, working actually working with us uh, on, on the conversion. And it's not only just fringe where we're also creating Savage Worlds versions of Incursion and Bureau 13. We're doing them all at the same time so that because there's a lot of inter, inter, interlocking between the three different systems so that way we only have to do it once instead of three different times. Right well they can get their own podcast to advertise those things. That's right we should probably talk to the Bureau 13 uh, team and have them do a podcast. That would be great but Lix you're doing the cover for it right? Yes I am uh, as, as far as I know. Um, I, I did the last one, so if, if uh, Rich wants me to do this one, then I'll do it. Has he made any mention of any interior art to do? Uh, no, but I think I think he was interested. Uh, the last time I talked to him, he was really happy with the work, so he'll probably he'll, he'll probably ask me to do some more. All right. Well, that's uh, that's great. Now, of course, there's no finish point at the, at this time because they're just now getting going. Uh, you guys have created a wiki for it, right? Uh, that's right. We've created a wiki. Uh, unfortunately, folks, it's, it's designers only. Uh, you can't get in. But we use that to hash out all the various uh, problems and so forth and uh, conversions. Uh, a lot of conversions are fairly straightforward. I actually was done a lot of conversions for Incursion myself as, as a fan version of it. So it's actually farther along than the other two are. But the uh, fringe reason is going to catch up because we actually have created a lot, a lot of new uh, edges and hindrances for it. For in, in the game, though, we probably have to pare them down a little bit to make sure we have ones that are useful and don't basically unbalance the game. 
Well, that's great. And, uh, of course, the best place to find information about your progress, besides listening to the, this particular podcast, would be to check over at www.tritechgamers.com, right? That's right. We, we're, we're going to uh, put some postings in the public groups. We also, for those of you who are GMs, we may make available some items for, for playtesting to make sure we can do a sanity test on them. So uh, you can find out about how to become a, uh, become a special GM member of the board uh, on the board. Welcome to Packing for Survival. This time we're talking about life support. When we refer to life support, we're not talking about protection like body armor and things like that. We're talking about the sorts of items that you would carry with you to keep yourself healthy, to keep yourself sane, to keep yourself in good spirits and effective. It's also is so that you have ammunition to use against your GM, who is constantly going to be coming up and saying, hey, this just happened. What are you going to do? So you look in your backpack or your in your equipment sheet and you say, well, hey, I've got this. And that should give me a bonus to doing what you want me to do. And if the GM's reasonable and if you make a good case for it, then he'd say, yeah. And so that's one of the things we're trying to do here in this particular section is say, okay, these are items that everyone should have in their backpack or on their vehicle that they carry with them so that when the unexpected happens, you've got some flexibility and and maybe some unusual uses for some of these items or uses you might not have thought of. That's right. Unfortunately, some folks may get caught what we call the bastard GM. So no no matter what you got, he's going to screw you over. But hopefully you you don't have one of those worry about and if you do you might want to find yourself a new gm because that's not usually a lot of fun i prefer to beat my gms that way you know because that way you get to keep them and you also get the pleasure of beating them like physically or are you well talking? yeah yeah physically because you know i mean if you don't then they never learn like it's like like training puppies i find a riding crop is best for that well i'll, I'll defer to your to your experience there blix <laughs> snip 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 <laughs> uh, Okay, so um, uh, we have a list of items here, and uh, we're going to try to pick the ones that are going to be the most interesting to you, hopefully. And I have it in alphabetical order, but don't feel like, guys, don't feel like you have to go over it in alphabetical order. But the first item on it was an oxygen air tank. And, you know, you're going to go to an alien world. You don't know what the atmosphere is going to be like. You bring oxygen with you. Now, some of you say, well, okay, aren't you going to be carrying an environmental suit? Isn't that standard issue for everyone? I mean, for crying out loud, if you play the game, you know that one of the feats that you get is uh, environmental suit use so that you can wear the environmental suit with no minuses to any of your movement or, or anything like that. So why would you want an air tank? Well, the environmental suit weighs 30 pounds. That's a lot of weight. Granted, you're not you know, going to have the, the detrimental effects because of that. It's still 30 pounds worth of weight adding toward your encumbrance. So a tank, an air tank is only like six pounds, and therefore it's a lot easier to carry. It's a lot easier to hide if you want to hide it. And if somebody comes up and starts messing with you, you know, the, you open that tank up on your, on your campfire, you've got yourself a flamethrower going. True. And don't forget environmental suits are airtight. So while you may not have a a, a dex or a dex penalty for movement and so forth, if you're on a hot world, say like a hundred degrees, that environmental suit has turned into a sauna suit. So you may you know you may actually suffer from other problems. Uh, so having a, an air tank and a mask 
can help can be a lot more helpful than having a suit. Or actually, along with a suit, the two can actually kind of work together sometimes too. Let's not forget that uh, those environmental suits are not really made for swimming. So if you get in a situation where you have to go in the water and you have to be under there for somewhat of an extended period of time, like, let's say for example you come out through a, a warp or a ring that's in a uh, you know, an under underwater station and it gets flooded throughout the adventure. Um, having you know, having an air tank would be a lot more useful than having an environmental suit in that case, and that's just that's an odd example, but you never know. Well, and also when you're talking about swimming, uh, one of the other items on our list is a buoyancy compensator, and this is a standard diving device which is used to uh, neutralize the weight so you, uh, of a diver so they can swim at whatever level that they want to be at. They can swim up, they swim down, and the buoyancy compensator basically gives them just enough buoyancy to counteract the weight of that heavy metal or even graphite uh, tank that's on their back. And most guys even uh, carry weight belts that they can easily drop so they can go quickly up. Well, a buoyancy compensator, if you care, wear it on your yourself, it'll first of all, you know, it'll compensate for the weight of the environmental suit because the environmental suit does not have a built-in compensator. And secondly, is it um, if you're if you have a backpack uh, and you suddenly go in the water and the GM says, "Well, hey, uh, aren't you like heavily encumbered?" Well, you could turn to him and say, "Yeah, but I got this buoyancy compensator, and that's going to basically." You know, make the backpack seem light so I can actually swim with less effect. And, and some of those minuses he might have applied to your swimming, he might take away. He might even give you a bonus if the buoyancy compensator gives you enough buoyancy that you're actually floating somewhat. And uh, it, it would certainly you know, make it a lot safer for you to do some of those transfers that you otherwise might want to boat for. Uh, buoyancy compensators also, the high-end ones, also have a small little air tank connected to them. So if you were suddenly in a situation where you had, po- uh, again, poison gas around you unexpectedly, uh, smoke from a fire, uh, then you could go and say, hey, I'm going to go and – inflate this buoyancy compensator and open up the air breathing tube that we usually use to to blow into it and actually suck air out of it and it would be a very short term air supply for you and you could actually get bonuses to how long you could hold your breath because you're not actually holding your breath for maybe the first minute uh, okay so so a lot of the, again a lot of the ideas here are say okay how can we use our equipment to give us bonuses in these situations that we're suddenly thrown into now Bruce uh, I noticed that in the list you have inspirational text and family photos. So this is so you can use these to what uh, talk to natives and show them that you have a family as well. Or well, you could do that. Um, I was actually thinking more along the lines of a role playing kind of thing, where you know you're out there on the, on, the, on the fringe paths for sometimes long periods of time. Sometimes you know you, you're wounded. You've been trudging through uh, a a frozen waste for 40, 50 days. Sometimes you have to remind yourself why you're out there. You know what is you know what's you know what are who are you doing this for? A lot of fringe explorers come from the third world. They're poor. You know this was their w- way of getting their families out of the the poverty in which they'd grown up and never thought that they were ever going to have an opportunity to escape. So having those pictures can make a big difference. But you're right. 
if, if you ever run into some alien group and they say, oh, you, you're just these strange beings from another world, and you say, yeah, strange beings with a little boy who looks just like your little boy and a wife who I love just as much as you love your wife, and they say, oh, these guys aren't, you know, hard case, mercenary, death from above kind of guys. These are just regular people who are out there trying to make a living, you know, see the world Something in common, points of contact. I think that's an excellent idea, John. If they have a storytelling culture, uh, it allows you to say at a dinner to whip out one of these inspirational texts and give them a story. Because sometimes being off the cuff, you end up doing a very bad version of Star Wars. But if you got one of these things on hand, you can then go through and at least at least re- you know, use it as a, as a uh, cliff's notes, uh, give them a very inspirational story from our culture, and hopefully impress them. Yeah, and, and not only that, like you were saying before, if, for example, the, your characters get jailed and they're going, they're rifling through your stuff, trying to figure out what the hell you are, what to do with you or whatever, and they start reading through your inspirational, you know, your inspirational stories, they might say, well, hey, these guys aren't so bad. Look, look at their moral values. They're actually pretty good. Maybe we should give these guys you know, maybe a little slack. If you're, if, you know, if you're being taken over by something equivalent to, to the Red Chinese, they go, oh, Look at these! They're subvert, sub, you know, they're, they're 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 trying to subvert our culture. Yeah, that's always a a potential. It could go anyway, but the point of the matter is, is that it, it doesn't have to. I mean, if you're already in jail, what do you care if it goes bad? You know, it's like well, it's going to go bad anyway. We're in jail, but it could go good. This last weekend, uh, we had an Asian co- um, conference, an Asian cultural conference here in Atlanta. And when I went there, there was a delegation from Korea, and they were handing out books which had all kinds of fables from their culture. And I'm reading these things, and you know, uh, they're they're you know the story of how a young man was able to show to his teacher that you know his his reverence or how he was going the wrong way and then he turned around because you know the teacher said you know here you are sitting in uh, under a tree while your father has worked all day long to in, by the sweat of his brow to make the money to send you here you know where is your dedication how are you honoring your father's commitment to you and and the, and the students you know com, uh, turns around and says you're right. I, I, I really got to dedicate myself. And then they go on to become one of the greatest philosophers of their time. And the, you know, this book was filled with these kinds of stories. And, and these things cross cultural boundaries. And I, I agree, Blake's, on that. And if, if not, they don't all work out good, fine. You know, it, it, they uh, don't have to. But the point is that a lot of them are, are mostly about people who showing been showing the wisdom of a culture will turn and re- and respect that wisdom, and that's not bad for someone to find that on you. You know, much better than saying, you know, uh, oh, here's uh, the 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 yellow the yellow peril. You know, how to kill your enemy kind of track in in, in your literature. Right. I don't want going through my book bag. Remember, folks, no Jack Chick in your in your backpack. <laughs> well, I was thinking more along the lines of fifty ways to incapacitate and kill with your bare hands, kind of books that you find in, in the back of like, you know, the popular science and stuff like that. That's probably right. not the kind of book you want them to find in your backpack. One thing I was looking at is the mini hammock. It's probably one of those net net hammocks that you that you see a lot of times you can rub and put in your pocket. Okay, that's that's really great. You just got a little hammock. You also have a fishing net. Not a great one, but you got a fishing net. You know, when you're out in the wilderness and you're trying to survive, fishing poles don't cut it. You have to use something like a fishing net or a fishing weir. And if you got a mini hammock, you got a fishing net. 
and you can just string it across the stream and catch a bunch of fish and cook them, smoke them, whatever at that point. But it's something you can use to help yourself survive, and it's more, more than just for sleeping in. And if you've got one of those GMs that uh, trees you with a herd of, of giant grizzlies, and you've, you've gone up a tree to, to save your life, and he says, oh, well, but, you know, there's no way that you're going to be able to sleep properly. So, of course, I'm going to start applying minuses to you because of your lack of rest. You can say, but I've got this hammock that I can string between these branches, and I've got these earplugs that I can stick in my ears, and I can sleep. And therefore, you know, whatever minuses you're going to give me, there should be certainly a lot less. And a hammock can also, if it's the right kind of hammock, you can always use it to restrain somebody very well. It's just my paranoid thinking. Well, yeah, any any kind of a net can be used as a restraint. A lot of opponents that you run into, you know, a lot of times they have a lot of good weapons or they have body armor that you can't possibly get through. So, you know, the, the usual tactic is grappling. Well, you know, using a net, using this as an impromptu net, again, would give you an equipment bonus uh, toward doing a grapple. Hey, I, I just thought of a really super practical purpose for a hammock that I, uh, this is great. If you have an injured party member, you can turn a hammock into a stretcher very easily. Right. Here's something that's about the size of the palm of your hand, and you've already, you know, sa- uh, saved your life, been able to go on, rescued your party members, and, uh, and, 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 and used to trap that wild pig so you could have dinner that night. Yeah, of course, after you catch the wild pig, it's not, you, you can either wash it first before you sleep in it. You want to wash the pig before you sleep in it, did you say? No, the hammock. <laughs> I thought we were making some kind of, you know, Hoff reference here to Star Wars, you know. A lot of the, uh, the items on this list, like the, like the magnesium fire starter, uh, I, I put that on there because, uh, you know, you can get it wet. And mm-hmm. it, it'll still work. You just have to, like, get it, you know, shake it off, get it dry, and you can start a fire. Um, and obviously, for the same reasons, using a fire extinguisher is, is a good idea. Just, to, you know, it, because if, if your things get out of hand, if a sudden windstorm comes up or in a battle you kick your, your fire into the woods, if you can't stop that fire, you could all die from the, the a fire, forest fire that you've started. Also, uh, most of the, um, uh, of the fire extinguishers use uh, a powdery substance to knock out the fire. That can also be used as an impromptu gas attack uh, against your own opponents. You, know, they'll, 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 you, can, you can scare off animals and all kinds of things because they can't breathe and with that stuff in their lungs. I'm wondering if um, if you were in an area that was prone to say ants or something like that, if you'd spray down a layer of that, if you could, if it would keep insects away from it. Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I, that's that might be useful. Also, uh, tobacco. That if you take tobacco from your cigarettes, if you if if you're uh, using that and you uh, soak it and boil it in water and then spray that around, I know that the t- the tobacco naturally is is rather. Uh, good as a warding of insects. Oh yeah, yeah. It's um, a, I think it's a neurotoxin to most insects. So I'm, I'm looking at this um, gloves you have on here. Now, what kind of gloves would you suggest? Well, it's just the idea that you know, more often than not, you know, you you end up sticking your hand someplace you shouldn't, and you know, the GM says, "Oh, okay, this thing, you know, came down and collapsed. You know, grabs your fingers." Well, if you're wearing gloves. Uh, then you say, okay, well, then I, I'll, I'll do my uh, escape artist check 
And can I have a bonus because I can slide my fingers right out of the gloves? Just it's just a bad idea in general to to ever you know put your hand somewhere that you don't know exactly what it is. I mean, if you put your hand down on a surface and the glove starts smoking, or you put it down and uh, you know it's, it's acid, or you know any number of things. You know, it's like I said, it's it's best to wear some kind of protection on your hands uh, before you actually commit yourself to grabbing something. Yeah, I would say um, you probably you know you want to go maybe look online for um, gloves that uh, they sell to search and rescue teams for fringeworthy use because if you're going to take gloves out on the pathway, you might as well have a really really good pair that are that are easy to use, give you some articulation, and give you the best protection you can get. Um, right. I, I I don't know what kind of gloves those are, but if if I you know if I was making up my character and I was like, well, I want to buy some gloves to try on the French pass, I would get online. I would find some of the best you know fire and rescue gloves or or just emergency rescue gloves that I could find. Right, D twenty has a master work quality concept, so you you should be able to get bonuses again, equipment bonuses to your skill rolls. Is all these things help you in that regard? Ah, uh, yes. Okay, that's right. So. Uh, obviously, things like you know, a water filter is important. Carrying an axe. Um, I included the the chainsaw because, uh, a, it's it's a psychological. You could use it as a psychological effect because uh, it just it makes so much noise out of nowhere. And secondly, uh, you know, if a tree falls down on your vehicle, unless you're planning on blowing it off with uh, some C4 or something like that, most often you know you're talking about a huge time delay. Well, a chainsaw, even if you know, can really rip through uh, wood, and and it can be used to break into a building that, uh, like some of these log cabins, you can't shoot through them with weapons, uh, but you can cut through them with a chainsaw. Well, not only that, but you don't know what kind of terrain you're going to be driving on. So let's say even if you've got like the greatest four-wheel drive vehicle that you can buy to take out on the French Pass, if you get stuck somewhere, you can always cut, you know, pull out your chainsaw, cut down some tree branches, and give yourself some traction to get out of whatever you're stuck in. And again, you could do it with an axe, you could, you know, and, and possibly Ugh. a really big survival knife. But that we're talking some serious time now. And if you know, if you got somebody who's dying of uh, poison you know and or something like that you know where the effects are there's some of the effects are in days then then it's gonna it's gonna take some time uh, you want something that'll really make a difference quickly and we have certain things in the game like that explosives make a big effect in a short period of time chainsaws in this area are much better than knives and, and they work on the fringe pass uh, or do they no they wouldn't uh, but uh, still cool. it's well, a pull start chainsaw. I mean, I don't see why that wouldn't work. It still has a magneto on it. It still uses magnetics to to make the the charge to the to the the little spark plug in it. Uh, well, when you arrive, you recharge it, I guess. Um, yeah, I yeah. Know. Well, no, you. I mean, you just wait ten minutes, and then the then the electrodes oh. work right, and you just kick it off again. If you don't have an axe, I've seen this on all these survival shows. You can take a knife. You have a big, like a good sized survival knife, and you can use that with a uh, with a big stick. You know, like um like a club-like type stick, or even a rock in your hand, and you can bang on the back of the knife and use it just like you would an axe to cut down you know, saplings and stuff to build lean-tos and such. Actually, uh, the, the Boy Scouts uh, firmly believe that, generally speaking, you re- really don't want to use an axe the way most people use it. You see them swinging them like they're 
you know, trying to chop down a forest. You mm-hmm. use the axe to hit the wood and then you use something else, like, you know, like another piece of wood to bang the back of the head of the axe to actually split the wood because you had more control. You don't suddenly miss and cut your leg off or things like that. So, right. yeah, it's um, so using a knife like that is also possible. Is you know, you're really just talking about a heavy head to get to get like the, the, the wood starting to split. When you look at our game, you know, when we did the D20 version, uh, we mostly just said, look, you know, just use all the equipment that's in the player's manual uh, in, in the uh, D20 modern book. You know, we didn't want to just fill with a whole bunch of you know, stuff that you'd be finding in a lot of different sources. And so you know, when you look at the actual Fringeworthy book, there aren't a whole lot of just general equipment. So a lot of the stuff we're talking about right now, isn't, it, it might be in them or might not. Don't be afraid to add new equipment. Uh, again, just talk to your GM. Say, "Hey, what kind of bonus could I get if I had this?" If he says no bonus at all, well, then you know, don't don't weigh yourself down it. But if you can say, "Hey, then I could use this, and this would help me in this situation," then uh, that that'd be fine. Uh, that's that's just one more way of succeeding in the game, and that's what we're talking about: packing for survival. Listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Blix. I found a really good site that I enjoy going to. It's very pleasant. It's called RPGbomb.com. And it's basically sort of like a MySpace or a Facebook, but it's only for role players. It really only caters to role players. It has been a very friendly community and they're expanding all the time. It's kind of new. I know the people who started it and they're exceptionally nice people. They're constantly adding new features to it, like they just added a store to it so that you can start buying some stuff from them as well. But that's a minor addition to the the best part of it is, is the sense of community. So I would encourage going to RPG Bomb and signing up. I wholly endorse it. I've been using it for a year, and I really like it very much. Survival Tips The most dangerous thing that you're ever going to be doing in any of these games, that isn't fighting Meller, and that isn't uh, dealing with terrorists back on Earth Prime, it's actually going through the portal and meeting somebody. I mean, there's a lot of games where people go through and they spend you know, a couple of days uh, hanging around the portal, getting the lay of the land, stuff like that, and that's important, and that's part of what we're going to be talking about. But the most dangerous thing is when you actually come into contact with the intelligent beings of the land itself. So the title of this is Surviving First Contact, and that's what we're going to try to help you do. Blix, why don't you tell us about pre-planning? How should people prepare for that first contact? You're saying that there's no one has been to this world yet, or this is first contact with the people that they're meeting? This is first contact in the sense that they don't know who you are. They don't know who the fringeworthy are. You're going through a world. Uh, maybe they have. Uh, we've sent a windup through who's taking pictures and taking samples of the soil and air samples and taking taking some electromagnetic and maybe to- see whether or not there's any recordings of AM FM bands. Just the standard stuff that you get. But nobody's actually gone in and tried to make contact with the natives to see if this is a world where there might be something that we worth exploring other than of course it is an alien world and one you haven't been to before. Right. Okay. So I would suggest you must have reports of all the intelligence given, 
you must have those with you so you can refer to them at any time whatsoever because subtle information may make all the difference in the world. You may run into a problem that you didn't realize existed, but if you have the notes from previous information, it might all click and make sense. You'd be like, oh, okay, I understand, no problem. I, I would also say that people who go on first contact have to be prepared to be exceptionally nice, somewhat passive, because you are going to their world. And if they discover you as an outsider, then they're going to feel threatened, uh, as, as anyone would, somebody just coming into their land or their home or whatever. So you're not so, advocating peace through superior firepower? No, not so much, because it's just your small group and you're going into a world full of people. You are going to lose if you go in with that attitude, even if even if they're native. I mean, are, well, of course they're native because it's their world, but I mean, if they're primitive, a stone arrow will cut through your neck just as easily as a bullet. I would suggest that anyone who goes in to make first contact they have to be very diplomatic people. If you have a party of gung-ho nuts or you got somebody on your party that's prone to do things uh, out of hand, I, I wouldn't be participating in any first contact missions with that party or that person. I think everybody needs to be on board with that. And you also need to have a leader who actually has control of the group because if you don't, then other people will see that as a weakness and will not respect your group as much and may even... Uh, meet you with violence because fear usually leads straight to violence. So I, I would say for, for preparation, I would make sure that all my people were on board with what we're doing and to make sure that they know exactly what the protocols are and that they, they're willing to follow them. So do, do you advocate any kind of a secret code language that they might use to let each other know what their response should be in certain circumstances? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We always learn sign language in our group. While other people might know sign language, there are different kinds of sign language. Like, for example, there's American sign language and there's, you know, all the other countries, all the other languages have their own version of sign language. So if you go to another world, your sign language will probably not be understood by any of their people who speak sign language. Maybe, but probably not. So I think sign language is really good to have, or you can just, you know, make sure you have some code words, a few code words that indicate, or if I say this, it means shoot and run, or if I say this, it means, you know, back down, just let them do whatever they're going to do. But yeah, definitely. I definitely would say there has to be a code language to let everybody know what's, you know, what the deal is when you're going into red alert mode or you're going into a very submissive mode. So when you go through into the world, I always have all my team members wearing their environmental suits because as far as I'm concerned, yeah, sure, the uh, the windup went through, it did a detection, it didn't find anything. It doesn't mean that there isn't a huge patch of anaphylactic shock, poison ivy, another 50 feet further. So I always make all my team members suit up until we've shown that the immediate area isn't lethal. Yeah, that's actually... That's actually a pretty good idea. You know, even if you've had, you're right, even if you've had a, a first team go through there or, or even, you know, some people just step in there and take some samples or even if they just send in the windup, uh, you're right because you don't know what people are going to run into. And I would make sure that if you're going to do that, that it's, that you know that it's away from a population because <laughs> I can imagine just about any population that you're in, you sh if you show up in an environmental suit, if they don't know what it is, you're going to look scary. And if they know what it is, you're going to look really scary because they're going to be like, why is somebody in an environmental suit? So I would definitely 
be very wary of being around any kind of populace coming through in, a, in an environmental suit. Okay, so definitely environmental suits, something you want to wear when people aren't looking at you. You don't want to be that guy. And uh, I was a teenage caveman that would say, oh, it's a monster over there. And they shot right. him. And he was just this guy in an environmental suit riding a donkey. Right. Well, well imagine even if you know what an environmental suit is, how bad that is. It's like, oh, my God, are we under, you know, is there, did, did a bomb go off? Did you have biological agents that escaped? You sent people into a panic. I mean, can you imagine going out your door and seeing a couple people walk around in environmental suits? You'd flip out. <laughs> I would. I'd yeah. be like, I'd be like getting in my car and driving out of there as quickly as I could, if I could. Exactly. So not knowing what it is is just as dangerous as knowing what it is. You got to your environmental suit. You prove that it's it's relatively safe around. You get out of that. Again, one of the reasons why you can't assume you're always going to be wearing your environmental suit. I would immediately try to get some aerial reconnaissance of the area. Send up a balloon with a camera. Maybe one of those ROVs, helicopter ROVs. So you could get some nice high-level aerial shots. Because then I could be looking for things like landmarks, be looking for cities. And in the cities, I'd be looking for things like military installations, centers of government. And if all the roads all point to one building, that's probably a place that I probably want to try to get to. I think it's also important to make sure you have avenues of escape if you do have to leave and you know where they are. Right. That's true. I mean, you know, you come through. I don't know how militant some people are, but you may even want to set up uh, a defense grid like right outside the portal. So if you have to get out of there quick, your tracks will be covered if people are following you. If I had to do that, I'd want to make sure that I moved my camp a couple hundred feet over to the left or right, because the last thing I want to do is the, the bad guys are standing there in my camp holding it. And I want to come back and go through the portal, and I got to go straight through them. That's not what that's, I want to do. <laughs> that that's a very good point. Wherever the portal is, it's you, you want to make sure that you haven't uh, you have a clean access. Going through the portal is good for so many reasons. When the Meller are chasing you, you know, they, if they chase, follow you through, problem solved. Uh, <laughs> if right. you got a disease, you're going to get it cured. Uh, now, if you have an, a parasite infection, you're still screwed. But you know, at least you can't get more of them. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about the fleas having the bubonic plague anymore. True. Right. So, okay, so you, you went through and you, you got all kinds of reconnaissance and you know where things are. You don't have to worry about the, the initial language because you've already been gifted with the initial language, which is important because it gives you knowledge of all, all the different little terms and phrases that m make so much of difference in how you use them. You can now go and actually try to contact somebody. What would you go first to? Would you immediately go over to that government building? Who would you try to contact first, John? I wouldn't go to the governmental building because, for one thing, you really don't know what's going on there. You actually would need more information. You need more social information before you go anywhere near the headman, the government, the dictator, whoever's in that building. So you may want to find a house uh, someplace or a little farm or if the place is fairly urbanized. A bar. I hate to say this, uh, sometimes you can go to a bar and pick up lots of information about what's going on around around you without actually sounding too out, out of the ordinary. There's a lot of gestures us Americans like to make, and if you were to make those gestures in other places, you end up saying very nasty things to people sometimes. A simple one in case in point, if you do a victory sign, but flip it around, uh, you're basically giving a person from Britain the bird. Gestures are... Very important. Biting your thumb in some places is a cur is cursing somebody. Taking your right fist and smacking into the palm of your left hand. 
doesn't sound like much. Well, that's another equivalent of saying up yours to everyone who, who you're looking at at that point. So you have to be very careful what, about your hand gestures. Uh, putting fingers at people may, may be very impolite uh, up, to, um, up to being an obscene gesture. But yeah, if I want to go and contact, first contact would be someone I can be friends. Maybe they speak French here. Translation gag. We know it's like being said, but we're using the fact that we all speak a foreign language makes it a little bit easier for being strangers because we may know the language, we don't know the customs. And learning the customs is fairly important. And if you can learn what the customs are, or at least enough of them, then, then you may be able to approach the, the center of government and find out what's going on and, and basically again contact them. But before that, your first contact is going to be with somebody who probably doesn't have much in the way of actual political power. You'll be just contacting an average person in the street first just to, just to get a feel of what the culture is like. Well, if you're contacting somebody, let's say, uh, away from the street, so to speak, then if you look for a loner, then you may run into a problem about somebody who's a loner because they're not very good as an effective speaker. They're an outcast for a reason because they're a loner. Uh, maybe they, they don't socialize well. Maybe they're poor. They're of a lower caste. I think it would be best if you tried to find a kind of a representative household, preferably far enough away from everybody else that you could actually meet them in private. And that would solve a lot of problems to me because, first of all, they're going to be more conservative. They have children. Yes, they're going to be protected, but at the same time, they're not going to want to do anything to make you antagonistic. Think about all the movies where the bad guys show up and they, they're, they're, they're somewhat menacing, but they're talking to someone who, if they were by themselves, they would be, oh, I'll, I'll take you. I, I want to protect my family. I don't want you to get anywhere near my family, so I'm going to take you on right here. But if their family's there, they're like, okay, we don't want to do anything because we don't want to risk little Billy or little Susie, you know, who's right over there. So I'm going to talk nice to this person, and, and you can use that to actually – get the person to talk to you when they normally wouldn't do that. That's true. That's remember like finding a farm. A, a farm is a great, would be a great first contact location, as well as maybe some homes. Though going up to someone's home and knocking on the door can be very intrusive. You, you know, like I said, we don't know what the customs are. Maybe you're dressed in a way that suggests you're upper, upper cased, and you're knocking on the door basically of an untouchable. Uh, that's a major faux pas right there. So, you gotta be careful. Then again, you have to be careful about making that first contact, and sometimes finding a place where people congregate, like a bar, like a market, can be a place to make, if not make a, a hard first contact, but make a soft first contact and just soak up the, the people talking and listening to all the rumors and listening to all the gossip. You may get a good feel of what's going on, uh, enough that you may be able to be, become brave enough to actually try and make friends with somebody and, see, and go take it from there. I would find a market just a little bit too, I don't know, closed in because you know there's going to be guards there, military, to, because they the people who are at the market have probably paid them to, to protect them and watch out for them. You know, I, I like your idea of more of the bar better because it's usually a little bit more self-contained. You know, the only real protection there is going to be like a bouncer or even the bartender himself. But I still kind of like the idea of going to a family first. If you have a place like that, if there's a roadhouse on the way and you saw that from your old pictures, then I'm all for that. But uh, and, Or a gas station. 
it doesn't have to be a, a medieval thing. I mean, it could be more modern day. It could be a gas station uh, with a bait shop next to it. There's lots of, of, of stories you could hear that way. But if you uh, actually had to, to choose somebody to go to go in contact, what I'm thinking about here is that you're wanting to look for not just immediate information, but somebody that you can leverage into you know, some additional help, someone who can really be your invitation into this world. So you look for somebody, look, look for a house, a dwelling that isn't the poorest one because that way you know, that might be the untouchable. And you don't want to look for the richest house because, you know, they're, they may not want to talk to a stranger. They, they have too much to lose. But you look for somebody who's somewhere in the middle who doesn't have a really high fence, uh, doesn't, isn't their, their, their house doesn't seem ostentatious compared to the other ones. Then you go to that person and if they receive you in a positive way, then you can use them as a go-between. Say, okay, uh, we want to talk to some people, but we don't know how to do it. Oh, well, I've got a cousin, and he's works as a janitor in the government building. We could go over there, and he could show you around, or just having them as an interpreter. Uh, uh, one of the ideas I had was the fact is that if you have somebody who's a native, and they and they say something to the government official or who or the the priest or whoever it is you're trying to talk to, and the priest doesn't understand, doesn't like what you just said. Now you all, all already can hear and understand completely what is being said, but you keep acting like you don't. That was your idea, John. But if they don't like what's said, you go, oh, oh, no, no, and you go and start talking to the person. Oh. And he says, I'm sorry, I misunderstood what they were saying. This is what they really mean. Your go-between, you know, all, all the heat falls on him or her. And, uh, you know, and, they, and it's, just a, it's just a mistake. We, we, I just didn't understand. And he's got an excuse, too, because he didn't understand exactly what they meant. They come from the hills, and they have this brogue, this, this, Irish, this Scottish brogue that from the hill country that I'm having a hard time understanding. This is what he meant. So that's what I'm, I'm, I'm going for with that. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Yeah, I think if it were me and I was going to a first contact, if it was a modern city, the first place I'd want to go is find a university and then try and find uh, their science professor. You know, try and find some science professor and letting him know who we were and taking it from there because generally those are the people that would be most acceptable to an interdimensional being coming to their world and if you came to him um, he would get the idea that you know you don't mean any harm because you're not like invading and he would probably have he'd probably give you some insight and be happy to help you along your way right I think that's a great idea Blake you know, I just saying that you need somebody to help you identify who that person is and help you maybe get to there if it's a modern world maybe you can just go and look them up in the phone book say university and uh, head of science department Okay, we'll just go visit them tomorrow. But right. you might actually need somebody who yeah. can walk you through the whatever kinds of security or social mannerisms you need. Because they like say if you walk in there and you put your hand out to shake somebody at his hand, and, and to them that's an obscene gesture, you're probably not going to make a good first contact. No, probably not. Practice on somebody who isn't important first, if we can. Right, right. That, that's where observing people 
comes in really handy because then you can see uh, do they have the tendency to bow each other like the Japanese did in the past? Well, if they did, well, okay, then make sure you bow. And there's, of course, how much do you bow? But that's something you have to, you would have to learn uh, at that point. Uh, so in case you can just do the old head bow, sometimes you have to bow the whole, you know, from the waist all the way down type thing. But it really depends. Yeah. That you have to learn. Yeah, God help you if you end up in the middle of uh, French court in the middle of the, the 17th century. You'd be lost. Right. That's when they're developing etiquette and the, all these various rules for sitting and seating and eating and all this. That's, that's, why, that's where the, the two forks on the one side, the, the, the spoons, the earth. You know, basically, that's where all that crazy stuff came from. It was for, it's from the court of Louis the, I think Louis XVI? Or is it Louis the, Louis the 15th? One of those guys developed all this just to keep his courtiers busy learning what the new etiquette was at the time. And not plotting right. to overthrow him. Okay, so let's assume we actually did find this person that we're trying to meet. It could be a scientist. It could be a philosopher. I mean, after we find the local farmer and get him to, to help us go and meet the scientist or the philosopher, whoever it is that we think is most likely to listen to our outlandish story and take us seriously, then we need to leverage that person's, that person's goodwill, if any, to our benefit. And we can't let them know that we're doing that. As you said, Blix, we have to be really laid back and friendly. We have to let that person really think that we're there to help them. Yeah, we have an agenda. We want to do some things. But the first thing we want to do is make sure that we're not going to get that person in any trouble by dealing with us and that we have things that, that could benefit them. You know, we can pay them money. We can give them technology. If assuming that we're not trying to get better technology from them. But even so, I mean, not all cultures advance at the same rate in all areas. You know, they might have great steampunk-type devices and flying rotors everywhere and nuclear power, but they may not know how to make plastic. You know, they might have totally missed that, that they get all their rubber from rubber trees from Malaysia, and they don't know how to do basic organic chemistry. We need to make sure that they feel like they're getting the better deal from us than we're getting from them. Right. Because they'll protect us then. And we need protection because there's only a few of us in this team, and we're probably pretty far away from that portal about now. Yeah. What is the goal of the first contact? It's just simply to let them know that we are from Earth Primer, or is it something else? My players consistently just blab it out. Hi, we're from another world. We're from IDET. We've come exploring your world. And, and every time I've got these guys, you know, these natives rocking back on their heels and like, you know, uh, how do we believe this? And, and, and they actually have it set up pretty well. They whip out the laptop. They've got a welcome to IDET video where it talks about our the world they're from and shows them all kinds of videos and wonders of the world and, and, and stuff like that. There's enough material there that, I mean, literally could go on for hours and hours and hours getting in more and more depths, kind of like the, the movie uh, Starship Troopers, Would You Like to Know More kind of concept, you know, hypertexting and stuff. So they are fairly convincing when they do that. The problem is to be in a situation where someone is willing to listen to them long enough for them to get through their spiel before they just, you know, just grab them and drag them off to the loony bin 
or say, oh, no, you're not. You're a spy from, you know, the, the, the bad country, and, and this is just some kind of a, of a trick you're trying to do, or you're really demons, and you're just trying to act like you're not from hell. You know, this, this whole thing is just a, a trick of the devil. Worse yet, they go, hmm, you're aliens. Off to Area 13 for you. At least you'd be talking to people who, who believed you at that point, as far as... As far as you being an alien. Yeah. Before they hit you with the chloroform and put you out for the vivisection. But other than that, you know. Right. Well, dissections. I hope di- they give me the chloroform first. Dissections all around. Yeah. yeah. Now, of course, I, I come from, my background actually comes from the old Paratime stories by H. Bean Piper. So for me, I've always had, part of the mission, part of the protocol is to keep mum about where they're from. And until they determine who they're talking to it's worthwhile for us to contact. Different agenda at, at that point. Keep it secret until we know that they are good guys to contact. You know, we don't want to get a group there who just turns around to come to be another bunch of fringe pirates off their world at that point. I agree. I don't think you should tell who you are. But coming up with a good backstory where every different adventure could be on a, would be on a different world with a lot of different possibilities is hard. Some people advocate the uh, traveling merchant from a, uh, a distant land kind of concept, which can explain a lot of weird things that you might be carrying in your lack of knowledge of customs. But I don't think that works too well in a modern setting. I think that works better in a more medieval or rural yeah. setting. You read my little story I wrote. I, folks, I've written these little stories that are called pocket stops. They're just little vignettes. And one of them was exactly what, the, what we're talking about, a first contact. Uh, it was taking place in a place in a world that's sort of like Indonesia, that area, and the, the two characters went to an open air market and were selling things and were trying to find somebody to get them to contact somebody in government or at least someone in in a university. I thought about this a lot before before we came to this uh, podcast. And getting together a so-called merchant kit isn't that expensive either because historically, very simple things like stainless steel knives and droppers, just simple stuff that that can literally, they cost, you know, you you can buy a a bag full at the dollar store in in most worlds that you go to would be considered fairly valuable. Yeah, molded glass. Molded glass bottles is something you can't get in some places. So you can buy a bunch of those little two-ounce, three-ounce molded glass bottles with stoppers. You can make a mint with those and, and make a, make great connections that way, at least, at least with people who have needs of that small size bottles, like a, like apothecaries. You can also take stuff out of all the bottles you have with those alien writing labels on them and put them into these bottles and uh, you know so that they're not quite so obvious what it is that you're carrying with you. That's true. I will drink this magic potion and have the power of the gods. Glug, 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 glug. Well, I'm sure your breath will be minty fresh, but I don't know about having the power of the gods. So ultimately, what you're saying, John, is you're trying to get, you're trying to contact somebody who's in a position to open the way for more negotiations, more information, you know, about this world. Somebody who you can use to leverage the manpower and the knowledge that's already been gathered in this world about its culture, its artifacts. Because remember, we're in most cases, we're looking at a world that is the result of the fall a thousand years before of the, of the Commonwealth. They may have artifacts that they don't even know what they are. They have legends of uh, ancient combat 
that's nobody believes is anything more than the story. But the locations that they mention in that story might actually correspond to real life places. And they says, oh, yeah, you know, that used to be a so-called burial place. But now it's a thriving metropolis. You know, any kind of artifacts that that you might be interested in, I'm sure, would probably be in the local museum there. And so, hey, now you know a place to go look, you know. You, you go over there and you find this, oh, we have this little, this box. It has this very strange little bead. It's supposed to have magical powers. But, you know, it's it's obviously just a little bead, you know. And, of course, we know it's a Tamellern uh, ear implant. It's a, it's a strange little pearl. We can't, but no one's been able to make a mark into it. Well, yeah. All right, you know. And, and here's this egg. We think it's the egg of a dinosaur. We don't, we don't know what that symbol is. And you're like, oh, I know what that symbol is. That's the symbol of a nuke. Well, I was going to say that one of the things you want to be careful of is if you uh, if you go into a world that's after the fall, you know, that the, the Dan had been part of the Commonwealth, um, what you've got to be careful of showing up and saying, hey, you know, I'm from another world and we're friends rather than everything. If a Meller has, in, has infiltrated that society, say a Master Meller or um, a Great Meller maybe, probably a Master, but if they have infiltrated that world and they find out that, hey, there's some guy from another world, uh, he may try and make it so that you wind up dead and he gets your crystal so he can get out of there. That's true. I mean, that's, the, that's that is a definite worry. If he was stuck there, uh, Crystal, when the, when, the, when the portals were shut down, yeah, he's going to be looking for you and your crystal. Right, right. So, so he may even have, if he's, and, and they will, they will have gotten themselves in power because that's what they do. Um, he will probably have tried to set up some kind of, of grid so that if you get on, say, their computer system and you're looking for certain things, he may even say, well, you know, if somebody comes through from another world and they, they arrive here, they're going to start looking for certain things. And I'm going to create a program algorithm that runs in the background that will look for people, you know, looking for that sort of thing, like, say, on the Internet or whatever. You type in certain search keywords and he gets a red flag to go look at it and say, okay, what, where's this coming from? Maybe we should check it out. I mean, that's being a little paranoid, but it's just something that you may want to just kind of keep in the back of your head when you're digging around and telling everybody who you are uh, and where you're, you're from another world and, and everything. You may be setting yourself up to get killed by one of our mushy little friends. I, I think it is paranoid, and I think it's very well justified. You know, they are out to get you, and they, they're immortal, and they're very patient. Uh, if, assuming that they're high enough up the genetic scale of themselves that they don't just attack everything in sight. So, you know, and that makes them even more dangerous because, you know, they, they're going to, as you say, they're going to place themselves uh, near to the, the center of powers, but not the actual guy. So that when you show up and you say, well, you know, I'm going to go talk to that guy over there because he has the ear of the king. Well, <laughs> guess who you're talking to? Right. You might not want to say, oh, hey, I'm, I'm from IDED, and we're working with the Tamellern to reestablish the Commonwealth. And he's like, <laughs> what a great idea. <laughs> right. Let me in on that, you know. Yeah. He might say, well, I'm going to go back to this IDED as you and infiltrate IDED through you. So, yeah, you always have to be on the lookout for that because DM should play Mellers very devious because that's, I mean, that's, that's exactly what they are. Right. And so I guess my last point would be is that because of this possibility, never make first contact by yourself. You always want someone to vouch for you. <laughs> right, exactly. Because when they do that mind transfer and listen to the really, really top level Meller, 
There's ne they're never perfect. There's still little things that they're going to forget to do, little mannerisms that they're going to drop at you. Just like you're trying to learn the mannerisms of another culture, they're trying to learn how to appropriately use your mannerisms as well. And somebody who knows each other intimately, you might be able to pick up something before somebody else. You know, it's a, I guess they, they call it the doppelganger challenge and other places and things like that. But yeah, always definitely go in pairs to make sure whenever you contact somebody for the first time to make sure that there no one there's not going to be any substitutions coming back. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So any other ideas about what we need to keep in mind for first contact and being able to survive it? Well, being paranoid is one. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it doesn't help. Being paranoid, not just because of Miller, because you may be you may encounter a fairly milita militaristic culture. You may encounter a culture that considers human sacrifice to be something to be a good thing. You know, if you say you met a met a, a culture based on the Mayans, but now it's Mayans, ten, you know, two thousand years later, and they still do they still do the ritual sacrifices, and you may actually just fit the bill. So being paranoid is not a bad thing. Be paranoid, but be nice. Yes, be uh, nice. Be nice <laughs> uh, until it's in time not to be nice. Yeah, that's true. You got to remember that if you've got loose cannons in your party. You do not want to be part of a first contact team. For example, you got players in your game because you can't always control who you have, and you know you might enjoy playing with somebody, but you know that they play their characters out of control sometimes. You probably want to talk to your DM or your game master about saying, you know, I don't think we should run a first contact team. I don't really think that that's our forte because we've got, you know, Bill over here who always plays some maniacal character who's going to flip out at some point during the adventure. Really, I debt wouldn't have that kind of person on the team to begin with, so it's kind of unrealistic that you'd even be part of a first contact team. There's plenty of other jobs to do with somebody like that, yeah. a rescue team, an assault team, whatever. But, if, yeah, if you're going to have a first contact team, you really need to have all the players on board with keeping their cool. That's true. Well, this is funny to hear me hear you say that, Blix, because you know, I actually am a terrible instigator. When we're playing Fringebury in our, in our current campaign, I'm the GM. Uh, and a lot of times people aren't there, so I get to play their characters. <laughs> and, oh, I just love to mix things up. And I even encourage players sometimes to do things that are a little bit over the edge. And the reason I do that is because, first of all, this is a game that's supposed to be exciting. Okay, it's right. not supposed to be stupid exciting. You know, you're not. It's not supposed to be exciting because you didn't plan or or whatever like that. But a lot of times, what we find out in these games uh, when we're playing it is the fact that some of the players are so conservative, they're so afraid to make mistakes that they literally will sit there for four hours planning out their first contact and never actually do it. They'll say they'll, 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 this scenario and that scenario and. and <laughs> And the other and and some of the other players there are just bored stiff. And so sometimes what I'll do is that I'll I'll do things to mix things up. I don't you know I don't want to have blue bolts coming from heaven. But recently in in, the, in like the last adventure they got captured by some intelligent trees and they were being taken over to a building. And they decided at the last minute that maybe that wasn't such a good idea. So they jumped out of the wagon. The, the trees weren't expecting them to jump out because all the slaves are very well behaved uh, because they get killed if they don't. They jumped out of the wagon and the trees are chasing them. I said, oh, okay, 
well, we need to escape and we need to really cause, you know, these guys to hesitate. So I pull out this demo pack of C4 and I light it up and I throw it over there about 100 feet away and I run. Boom! <laughs> Explosions everywhere, trees flying. Uh, you know, you just know that they're going to have a relatively negative reaction to the team at that point. You know, they didn't know who they were really anyways. They, the you know, the team was kind of a strangers that they saw climbing down this slope to toward one of their villas of their 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 high, high muckety mucks and so they were taking them in for questioning now this big explosion and, and, and screaming and stuff like that so i'm a terrible instigator i i would probably be just the kind of person you wouldn't want on your team like <laughs> Well, yeah, that's true. I was just thinking of the, the most optimal, successful thing. You know, that doesn't always happen that way. And a lot of times, a lot of fun adventures will come out of the person who does uh, the stupid or the, or the crazy thing. And it because every once in a while, you know, if you do everything by the numbers, the, the game master hasn't doesn't have that planned. You know, he's like, well, look, somebody's gonna have to screw up somewhere because I gotta get this adventure into an adventure. It needs if you want to run just a purely diplomatic mission, that's fine and all, but that's generally not that much fun. Right, and, like and you no. Said, and- and no plan yeah. survives first contact with, with anybody. Absolutely not. Absolutely. I want to bring this up now because I had we had a, a player who used to always like to try and plan for every contingency. Every time. We'd sit and it'd be like an hour of this guy. What if they do this? What if they don't do this? What if they do this because we didn't do that? And what if and the reality is planning that far ahead is just ridiculous. When you're gonna go into first contact, you have to be super flexible. Matter of fact, it might even be best if you don't really have much of a plan. Then you're not pigeonholed into this plan and trying to make it work. You might actually be more successful. Because the first contact, it can go any way. You never know what's going to happen. It would be better for the for the group if, if everybody was a little more flexible than serious. But still, you know, you still need the seriousness. But, but definitely flexibility would probably have to be the most important factor right. in that. So don't overplan because you're not going to – whatever you think is going to happen isn't going to happen. Yeah, you, know, right. you just but you want to give yourself as much you know options as possible. So you know you 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 got you get your best person with the best diplomacy skill talking to the people, trying to get them along. At the same time, you make sure you got an escape route in case you do have to fall back. You know, make sure you've got your smoke grenades or your tear gas grenade in case you have to, because you don't want to hurt anybody when when you do this. And, uh, right. And at the same time, you know, uh, throw a handful of gold coins in the air. The, the the people surrounding you, they don't care. You could be a demon from hell, but doggone it, they're going to get their hands on that gold coin, aren't they? Absolutely. So, I, I agree. I think that you need to be flexible. But planning is good. Just make sure that you don't over overdo any of these aspects. You know, just a well-rounded plan and some kind of a, a thing about like say making contact with somebody locally don't commit yourself too far try to make sure that the people that you're talking to have a reason to protect you and if you know they're going to turn you in don't hold it against them you, you, you knew it was going to happen just make sure that you're ready have a plan for the next step and if you have to beat feet for the portal you can always come back in a year or two don't they may not have forgotten about you, but at least they won't be waiting for you. Right, right. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Thank you for joining us once again for the Fringeworthy Podcast, for listening to all the ideas about how to pack for survival and uh, how to survive first contact. 
This is Bruce Sheffer from Atlanta saying, remember, there are millions of worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John from Seattle, and remember, keep your powder dry and keep those cards and layers coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, don't shoot the portals. They shoot back.